Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Lots of liberal democracies are struggling with how to confront illiberal leaders. This week, the European Parliament changed its tactics toward Hungary and its leader, Viktor Orban. The EU Parliament voted for the first time to censure a country over a breach of rules and values. With me to talk about the tactic and how Hungary's Viktor Orban might react is Yasha Monk. He's the author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. His podcast is The Good Fright, and it's good to talk to you again, Yasha Monk. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Jerome. I think a lot of people don't know much about European Union Parliament uh, politics <laughs> and how it goes and, and why this is significant or not significant. Can you put this into some perspective for us? Well, first of all, I just want to say that listeners in the United States are in very good company there because most Europeans know very little about the European Parliament as well. Um, the, 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 the main forum for political discussion remain the national parliaments, and it's very rare that anybody pays much attention uh, at all to the European Parliament. So the fact that people have been talking about this is a testament to uh, how far the situation has deteriorated in Hungary. Basically, the country for a long time has been veering away from liberal democracy, Viktor Orban, who was democratically elected, is starting to attack fundamental democratic institutions like the rule of law, the independence of judges, the free media, nothing that you could ever imagine in the United States, of course. Um, <laughs> and for a long time, uh, the European Parliament has just put up with it. In fact, his party, Fidesz, is a member of a sort of coalition of a faction of center-right parties in Europe, to which, for example, Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, uh, also belongs. Um, and so now for the first time, uh, a lot of people have gotten off that boat and said, you know what, Hungary has gone so far, we really have to react in some kind of way. Now, I think the approach that Europe has been basically taking with Viktor Orban for many years has been, we give uh, this country lots of money. The EU subsidizes lots of uh, projects in Hungary. And they could, they thought they could control Viktor Orban and the the party, and and that eventually they would be able to curb his authoritarian tendencies, and and this is kind of a white flag they gave up. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how much will they ever actually had to control him. There was always a lot of talk about, you know, if he crosses the next red line, if he crosses the next red line, then we're going to do something. Um, but of course, he did cross one red line after another. And it always turned out that they didn't do anything. So in that respect, um, it reminds me a little bit to bring it back home um, to the congressional Republicans who in the early stages of Donald Trump's presidency said, well, if he does this and this, then we're really going to check his power. But, but then those events occurred and they still remained utterly loyal to him. And there's a similar dynamic going on in the European Parliament where particularly Manfred Weber, who is the head of the EPP, the biggest faction uh, in the European Parliament, of which Fidesz is also a member, kept saying, well, you know what, if things really deteriorate in Hungary, then we're going to act. But for now, it's better to keep that leverage. But they never used that leverage. They always postponed actually doing something. And as a result, so far, Orban has been able to have his cake and eat it too. He kept getting these huge sums in uh, infrastructure development funds from the European Union, uh, and yet he was never censured in any way until now. So this is quite a significant departure, but it leaves the, the continent in a slightly incoherent moment because a, a lot of the members of the EPP, for example, voted to censure the Hungarian government for attacking democracy. And yet the party of the 
quasi-dictator remains one of her political friends, remains part of the same political grouping in the parliament, which doesn't make much sense. Well, is the idea now that uh, they, I mean, it sounds like Viktor Orban might leave the political grouping, take his marbles and go on and try to start. He's he's claiming that he is the true democratic uh, EU guy and that everybody who wants true democracy in the EU would follow him because he thinks he's being attacked because of his migration policies and, uh, you know, doing conservative things. And that's exactly what he got elected for. Yeah, and so there it's a really important thing to distinguish between different kinds of policies that Orban pursues. So it's true that he has uh, a set of policies that are strongly against migration and strongly against uh, the refugees who have been coming to Europe in large numbers, especially in 2015. Um, And he's been criticized a lot for that. I think it's legitimate to criticize him for that, but that's not what he's been censured for in the European Parliament. That is not the thing that is democratically illegitimate. We can have disagreements about that. You can have debates about that. But ultimately, the Hungarian government gets to decide its migration policy. What it doesn't get to do is all of the other stuff that Orban has been doing, which is, for example, to uh, run a very corrupt regime, which members of his own family are profiting from. It is, for example, to abolish the independence of the courts in the country so that uh, nobody can ensure that there's free and fair elections. It is to staff the Electoral Commission with his allies so that they impose huge fines on all of the opposition political parties but somehow don't investigate his own political party. It is to gerrymander and change the voting system in order to help himself in, in very important ways. Those are the things that make it virtually impossible for the opposition to displace him through democratic elections. And those are the things that the European Parliament has been complaining about. Well, did the European Parliament fumble that in a way with its report? The report, which was composed by Judith Sargentini, a Dutch uh, member of parliament, uh, did a did not just talk about those things, but it did a laundry list of things like um, how they treat the Roma, how they do their migration policies, how the rights of LGBT people. It was all these other things that um, give Orban, you know, some rhetorical wiggle room and say, well, they're they're just against democracy. Yeah, so I think it's important to distinguish between those things, and I agree that there are moments in the report where. It mentions things which are best kept apart. Um, uh, Now, I think it's very clear that the reason why Orban got censured was his attacks on democratic institutions. That is uh, the main ground for concern. That is the thing that actually um, uh, produced the political will for his own political friends, supposedly, to ultimately vote uh, against him. Um, and it's also true that some of the issues you mentioned are a little bit more more, more complex. So, for example, in... uh, the case of a Roma, those are actually Hungarian citizens who have a right to be in the country and who are subject to extreme intimidation, maltreatment by the authorities and so on. Um, so that is a violation of basic democratic, liberal democratic principles, uh, which I think the, the European Parliament is within its right to criticize. Um, there are also certain passages in the report where I felt this is something that I also dislike, but it shouldn't be part of that report. Um, I don't think that makes the the overall report illegitimate in any way, however. 
I'm talking with Yasha Monk. He's the author of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And we're talking about what the European Parliament has done. They've uh, censured Hungary and its leader, Viktor Orban, in a vote this week. Now, what does the penalty end up being? The worst thing that can happen, I guess, is the voting rights of uh, Hungary are clipped, but that seems unlikely because it takes a unanimous decision and Poland is going to vote with Hungary. It's an ally of Hungary. Uh, what do you do to, to be effective if you want to change behavior here? Yeah, so this is important to note that so far um, all that's happened is purely symbolic. Um, it is important and it's a very welcome development that over two-thirds of uh, elected representative of various EU member states have uh, censored uh, Orban for, for the extreme attacks on democracy. And it shows how bad these attacks are that so many people from different countries, from different political traditions have been able to agree on that fact. Um, but it doesn't actually do very much to stop him in his tracks yet. And as you're saying, um, uh, in the end, it is likely that Hungary keeps its voting rights because they have uh, this backup from from the Polish government. Now, I think that there's two different questions we have to distinguish between here. One question is, um, how can we actually influence events in Hungary? And I think that's ultimately impossible from the outside. Um, it'll have to be for the Hungarian people to realize how tyrannical Orban is becoming to to stand up against him. Um, but the EU and, has all this money; they could cut it off if they were felt felt offended. Yes, and and and, and they absolutely should. Um, I think that will allow Orban to say, look, uh, uh, you know, we're being victimized here. Look at how others are trying to punish us for our policies. So I don't think that cutting off that money is actually going to change his behavior. But that's why the second point is crucial, which is that this is now also a question about what does the European Union become? The European Union was always founded upon and always legitimate in part because it was a club of values. Um, which is to say that it wasn't just a regional trade block. It was a, a space in which we're trying to defend liberal democracy. Um, and the second thing is um, that there is an implicit assumption in some of the core arrangements of the European Union and its voting arrangement that all member states are going to be democratic. Um, uh, why should German citizens, French citizens, Italian citizens share the sovereignty with each other? Well, because they're relatively small countries and together they can accomplish more. There's an obvious answer to that. But why should they share the sovereignty with a dictator or quasi-dictator in Budapest or for that matter in Warsaw? There isn't a good answer to that. So if we allow Hungary to remain a member of the European Union in good standing, I think that it takes away all of the legitimacy from the European Union itself. And since our ability to influence what happens within Hungary is quite limited in any case, that is the question that should take priority right now. Is there different tactics that might be more effective to if you're opposed to Orban? Uh, is coming out and saying, well, you are uh, up to your ears in corruption and going about proving that and demonstrating that to people a better tactic than saying you are a illiberal Democrat who's taking over, uh, you know, all the newspapers in Hungary? Um. Well, you know, I, I, I think rhetorically you can try all of those tacks um, and uh, hopefully a more effective Hungarian opposition will form and, and, and try all of those tacks. Um, you know, I don't think that whatever is said in the European Parliament will penetrate that deeply into Hungarian political discourse at this point because uh, all of the big television stations, most of the main newspapers are already so controlled by the regime um, that there aren't any very effective multipliers uh, in any case. 
Um, but but I do think it's 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 a core point to tell people that it's not just the liberal nature of a regime in the philosophical sense, in the sense of defending individual rights that's at stake. It is the democratic nature of it itself. Um, at this point, there are no longer free and fair elections in Hungary, as the OSCE has pointed out. There is no longer freedom of speech. There are no longer independent institutions which can stop Orban from exercising even more brutal dictatorial control if he further slides in popularity. Um, and uh, I think those arguments are pretty effective. Now, you can also add that, by the way, uh, Mr. Orban's son-in-law, like Mr. Erdogan's son-in-law, and like uh, various other son-in-laws one might think of, um, uh, are doing quite well out of this regime, that they have uh, undue influence, um, that the Hungarian economy is not doing as well as it might be if it was uh, putting more money in investments rather than corrupt deals. Uh, those are all good additional arguments, but I don't think they're rival to each other. And I do think um, explaining the extent to which democracy is now a threat in Hungary is a core point. What is going to make Viktor Orban really uncomfortable? <laughs> because it seems like he is okay with um, almost anything that happens coming from the EU. He's in the past tried to make some concessions or he made these token concessions and then kind of went back and redid um, exactly what he said he wouldn't do. He's uh, got up and made a speech uh, right before the, the censure or the, the vote for censure that uh, he was going to, you know, you know, he just fully defended himself and, and he's going to take his marbles and try to, you know, portray himself as the big kid on the block and form a new coalition within the European Parliament of, you know, the real democracies. And he's going to try to make himself bigger than he was before out of this. I'm sure he's always going to try to do that. I mean, I think this has made him quite uncomfortable. One indication of this is that uh, Hungarian state television has actually uh, claimed that Hungary won the vote and that uh, various European politicians congratulated Viktor Orban on his success after the vote. Um, so, uh, you know, that both shows the extent of blatant lies that are now being spread within Hungary, which is shocking in itself. But it also shows that he clearly doesn't like what happened and doesn't want his people to know about it. Um, look, so far, we've tried reasoning nicely with him like a recalcitrant child uh, and saying, just don't cross the next line, red line and, and, and we'll be sure to keep giving you ice cream. Um, you know, if we've tried that over and over and it hasn't worked, then perhaps it's time to take the ice cream away. Um, and in this case, the ice cream is definitely his voting rights um, and the, the huge economic funds that the European Union pays to Hungary. Um, I'm not especially hopeful that this will uh, completely change his behavior. Um, it's very clear to me that Viktor Orban is uh, uh, on the same path as Recep Erdogan in Turkey and Vladimir Putin in Russia. He is not going to give up power voluntarily at this stage. Um, but at least he has to pay a price for his attack on the freedom uh, of his own people. And I think when Hungarians start to recognize the extent to which not they, not the country, but the government is being um, uh, uh, punished um, and is being disregarded, is being is being is being um, held to account by other institutions within Europe, uh, they may think a little harder about supporting him. The idea that they are going to take away his voting rights, though, uh, Poland would stop that, though. It's got to be a unanimous vote, right? Well, so put Poland on record as being the only country 
but is willing to defend Hungary. And by the way, since Poland is going in a very, very similar direction at even greater speed, um, start the same process towards Poland and put Hungary on the record as being the only country that is willing to defend Poland, make clear what is going on in the European Union at the moment, which is that a few countries are uh, really undermining the very basic uh, consensus of values on which the European Union is built. Um, but as I'm saying, in the long run, we will have to find a solution to that. Because while uh, Brexit, for example, is certainly uh, a danger to the European Union in various respects, it is easy to have an EU constituted of 27 rather than 28 countries. What is not easy, what is not going to work in the long run, is to have a, a block with, with real sharing of sovereignty in which some member states are democracies and others are quasi-dictatorships. There's no legitimacy for that, and so this poses an existential threat to the EU itself. Uh, so the people, the thing that is driving this are the true believers in both countries, in Poland and in Hungary. Uh, those are the people that just are not going to get a seat at the EU table, and that should be made clear to them? Well, I don't know. Uh, you mean the, the, the true believers within within the, the citizenry of those two countries? Yeah, the, the people who support these uh, people and organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as always in those kinds of situations, it's unlikely that you get to the true believers at first. Um, perhaps at some point when people see the extent of... Uh, tyrannical rule you get or the extent of the economic costs of it, true believers too can change their mind. But in the meanwhile, there's a lot of people who are in the middle. So Hungarian society at this point is very polarized. There is a lot of people who are fervent uh, uh, fans of Viktor Orban. There are a lot of people who uh, recognize him as a great danger. And then there's an important number of people in the middle. And so far, they can say, well, you know what? Um, the domestic opposition says that Viktor Orban is a real danger for our institutions. But if that's the case, why is it that Angela Merkel's uh, political party, for example, uh, says that they're his friends? So far, the opposition is saying that all of this will uh, lead to disaster, but the European Union keeps sending us money. So you know what? Perhaps this is all overstated. I think to those people, seeing that over two-thirds of MEPs across Europe are calling Hungary uh, in danger of losing its democracy, are calling out Orban for his tyrannical rule, are threatening Hungary with losing its status as uh, a, an equal member state in the European Union uh, with voting rights, uh, with the right to draw structural funds, is potentially going to make a difference. Yasha Monk is the author of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. He has also uh, got a podcast called The Good Fight. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Viktor Orban and Hungary and the European Parliament. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with a researcher from the Netherlands. He's here to study low-income and affordable housing in the United States. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm going to talk with a visitor from the Netherlands. Paul van Minnen is chief operations at a social housing company called Talus. He's here studying low-income housing and how it's organized in the United States. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tell me a little about yourself. You're um, you're from a town in the Netherlands, Nijmegen. Yes, uh, I'm from Nijmegen. Uh, I work there at a local uh, housing authority. We own uh, about 15,000 houses in the Netherlands, and we rent them to lower-income households. And I'm currently following a, a Master of Public Administration. And between the first and second year of that study, uh, you have the opportunity to go abroad. Uh, and I chose to study low-income and affordable housing in the United States. To explain a little how low-income housing works in the Netherlands, because it's very different from what we're used to here in the United States. Well, in the Netherlands, we call it social housing, and it's a combination between low-income housing and affordable uh, housing. Almost one-third of all houses in the Netherlands is a social house and is owned by a local uh, housing authority. I think um, uh, 55 or 56 percent of all the houses are owner-occupied and the private rental sector is about 9 or 10 percent. And we as a local housing authority, just like about 400 other housing authorities, rent those units to lower-income households. Um, We are a non-profit organization, so we try to do it for a low uh, rent. And uh, you've got 15,000 houses in Nijmegen alone? Yes, uh, we've got 15,000 houses in Nijmegen and a neighbor city called Wiegen, and there are two cities uh, next to each other. What kind of housing is it that you're dealing with there? Well, it's all kinds of housing. We call it multi-family units, but we also got single-family units. It's a combination of all sorts, and they're in most neighborhoods of Nijmegen and Wiegen. We have social houses. As I said, almost 30% or a bit more than 30% of all houses are social houses, so they're in most neighborhoods you'll find them. So if a person is renting and wants to rent and they are a low-moderate-income person, they would come to your organization? Is that how it would work? Well, we cooperate with a couple of housing authorities in a bigger uh, region, and we've got one central housing point, uh, and you can apply there, and uh, you can come on a waiting list. And on that list, there are all the houses in the Netherlands will appear on the list, uh, and all the houses in the region will appear on the list. And then somebody can react, and the person with the longest term on the list will come first to get uh, the house. That's how it's organized. There are, I think, five or six other housing authorities active in Nijmegen. And there's a limit on how much you can make and qualify for these types of houses? Uh, Yes, there's a maximum. In dollars, it's about $40,000 you can make. And if you make more, you're not eligible for our social uh, housing. However, that's only something that's considered when you're first applying. If you already live there, then we can raise the rent that has been introduced a couple of years ago. We can raise the rent more than with lower income tenants, but uh, we can't evict them just for no reason. Your system sounds really different than the one we have in the United States. What did you think you could learn from the United States? Well, a lot of people think uh, housing in the Netherlands is quite well organized. It sounds well organized. Well, (laughs) I think so. I think so, too. But there are, uh, of course, some issues that we deal with and we can learn from other countries. One is we try to get the private market realizing more affordable housing or houses with a rent just higher than the social houses we've got. And it's very difficult to trigger the market. And if you're an expert in something in the United States, it is in 
trying to let the market create public goods. So that's one thing that's very interesting and, and we can learn. And you've got all kinds of fiscal measures, I discovered, trying to get the market, build them. And also the public housing and the public housing authorities you've got, they operate in a different way than we are operating in the Netherlands. So we can't copy and shouldn't copy it all, but we can learn from the ideas behind how you're doing it and try to see what we can make from it in the Netherlands. I know that in the Netherlands, I was reading a statistic that the number of municipalities that have populations of non-Western migrants doubled between 2002 and 2015. That's an interesting thing, that you've got more cities with migrant populations these days. How does that factor into your work? Well, that's something uh, that I've learned here. When I came to the United States, I knew a bit about housing in the United States, and I did some research on the Internet. But the first thing uh, most people I talk to in the United States tell me is that segregation and racism play a big part in the American history of housing and are still present at some points. And I think that's something we can learn from in the Netherlands, how to prevent communities getting segregated. What we see in the in the Netherlands, uh, you've got a statistic on it, but we see that there are more and more uh, people from uh, foreign countries. Uh, most of the times uh, that will fit in quite well. Uh, but you see uh, tensions rising between the Muslim population in the Netherlands and non-Muslim population in the Netherlands. Of course, not all of them against each other, but there's the outcome of more right-wing politicians saying, uh, well, we don't, not all the Muslims should be here, should, do they belong in Europe, things like that. And you see tensions getting up more and more. And I think something uh, we can learn from the United States is that one way or another, we have to counter segregation. You have to make those communities included. If it wasn't for humanitarian reasons, it is for the huge cost, tensions and everything that segregation brings. I, I just read a report from Chicago. It's from the Metropolitan Planning Council. And they made a report called the cost of segregation. And they also calculated what happened. So Uh, In the United States, this has been going on for a long time. Everybody who I talk to tells me that. Uh, And I think by seeing what that has brought here and how that went, we can learn from it and try to prevent it in the Netherlands. I'm talking with Paul van Minnen. He is the chief of operations for a social housing company in the Netherlands called Talis, and he's here in the U.S. studying how low-income housing is organized in uh, Chicago and several other places. A lot of times it seems like migrant communities want to live together and live near the mosque they go to or live near the places they can buy food that they like. Is that a natural thing? Is there some kind of segregation that normally happens and is just a comfort to people? And I mean, if you you don't want to segregate people, but they want to be with each other, how do you deal with that? Well, I think at first you should give people the right to live where they want to live. That's the first thing. You you shouldn't mix up neighborhoods only um, because you you want to and get families out of each other, friends out of each other. That's that's another thing. But that doesn't mean that in your policies you can't make sure that in every neighborhood – there's social housing and in every neighborhood there's also other housing so the neighborhoods are mixed uh, from the start so people with different incomes and different from different groups can uh, live there i think that's the first thing to do and the second thing what's important to do is to 
uh, well, everybody has the right to choose his own friends, to choose his own relatives, and people uh, tend to uh, seek out their friends in the way they want to. But you need to be one country and you need to uh, let groups get along. And if you segregate groups too much, if you put one group in this uh, neighborhood and another group in that neighborhood, and you don't make sure you mingle that one way or another, well, then we can see what, what happens. We can learn that from the United States. I, I, a lot of people uh, told me about how that is in Chicago, on the south side and the west side. Um, they're more segregated communities and, and richer people living on the northwestern uh, side of the town. And the report of the Metropolitan Planning Council shows it that isn't good uh, economically, but it's also not good for getting the tensions low and getting people along with each other. And I think that's important. What are some of the key things that you think we could learn from the Netherlands? Is there something you think we could adopt that you do now? Well, I think that's a bit of a dangerous question because context matters, I think. But perhaps it's in the protection of tenant rights. In the Netherlands, there's a big system of the protection of, of tenant rights. You can't evict a tenant without a cause. And most rental contracts are indefinite. There are only special reasons why you can give somebody a temporary uh, rental contract. And if somebody's got an indefinite contract, the eviction isn't really possible only for owners who've got one house and want to live there by themselves or if people don't pay the rent. But I heard from a lot of housing professionals here in the United States that evictions here are a big uh, problem. Uh, so perhaps that's one thing that could be learned. And I know in the United States that the individualism and the, the freedom to pursue one's life goals are important values. And actually, I do care about them a, a lot myself. But in the balance between the rights of a tenant and the right of a landlord, uh, well, perhaps a little shift can help. Because if you evict uh, a family or a person from his house, he will not only lose his house, but if he can't find another house in that area, he will also lose his job, perhaps. He'll lose his friends. He'll lose, um, uh, well, a lot more. And I think you have to balance that against the, the, the profit a landlord is making. So if evicting somebody is one side and the other side is the landlord making a couple of hundred uh, dollars more a month, well, you can discuss about whether uh, how appropriate it is to do it. But again, it's not up to me to judge uh, praxis <laughs> in another country. But if you want to learn something from, from uh, about tenant rights, I think that uh, the Netherlands is an interesting country to learn from. Oh. Well, what happens if somebody's not paying their rent to your organization, if they stop paying rent? Well, if uh, somebody doesn't pay their rent, first thing we want to do is contact them. We want to know why somebody isn't paying uh, the rent. So we'll contact them by letter, we'll call them. Uh, we've got people in our communities and in the neighborhoods who work for us who visit uh, the person and we want to find out why somebody isn't paying. Because uh, most of the times the paying the rent isn't the first that stops because people uh, stop paying other things first because they need a house and they, they don't want to endanger that. So in most cases, we need to find out what happened, uh, try to offer them uh, help on their financial uh, issues. So we try all that. We cooperate with other uh, organizations too. And we try to arrange that the rent that hasn't been paid uh, will be paid. Uh, for example, uh, will be paid uh, in a year or will be paid in two years. And that's how we try to do it. If, if you look at the, the eviction rate, we've got 15,000 uh, houses. 
uh, well, and, and I don't know the number certain, but I think we've got 20 or 30 evictions a year. And then there are some evictions from that that are because somebody thought it's a great idea to, to grow drugs in their house. And then we evict all the time. So we try not to evict people because of financial problems, because the, the problem for society by evicting will get only bigger and bigger. Do you know the eviction rates in the United States? Well, I don't know the exact figures, but I went to a housing court uh, and I saw how in one minute or one and a half minute a case is finalized and somebody has to move out. I heard from a lot of professionals it's a much bigger problem here. I imagine that's entirely different than the process you're describing that you go through with it to see somebody evicted from their house in, in two minutes. Uh, yeah, I, I never saw that. Well, if somebody doesn't show up at the court case, I, I, uh, it could be possible it's done in, in two minutes. But most of the times the judge wants to know what, what happened. And the judge also realizes that evicting somebody, uh, well, is a major thing uh, to do. But we don't want the judge to make that decision. We want to prevent it ourselves. We are non-for-profit. And, well, we think it doesn't help to get somebody out on the street. What was the most surprising thing about your visit to Chicago and the United States so far that you really didn't expect? Well, the huge thing, racism and segregation was what I just talked about. That was one of the big things and the big variety of policies. A lot of professionals tell me, well, uh, we do uh, this policy and uh, perhaps we do another policy. But then there are 15 other offices doing also their own policy. And the numbers, one agency says, well, these are the numbers of our uh, policy. And another says this is uh, the number of our policy. But uh, to get a good, broad picture, it isn't that easy. And I heard from some professionals, they call that policies are all siloed. <laughs> and, and, well, you can say, well, they shouldn't be a siloed, and perhaps they shouldn't be. But it's also interesting to see all the different measures that are in place, because we can learn from some of those, those measures, like uh, stimulating private investors with tax credits. I learned uh, something about that here. That's interesting. Perhaps you can get investors uh, to invest. And some other things we've got in the Netherlands, we've got something like inclusionary zoning uh, since a couple of years. But the linkage, uh, the commercial property developers who have to pay a, a fee of which affordable housing can be constructed, well, uh, I don't know if we've got something like that. So there are all different instruments that are very, very interesting. When you go back, uh, which one do you want to take up most? Is there some kind of thing that you think that really sparked your interest that seems doable for the Netherlands? Well, something that I think is very interesting, I talked to uh, Mass Housing. It's an institution in uh, the state of Massachusetts. And what they do is they loan money to lower income households. And it's a quasi public company. And I think that's an interesting idea. I don't think we've got something like that in the Netherlands. Well, the government will help lower incomes with a lower rent sometimes. But here they're financing the whole mortgage or, or part of the down payment too. And I think that's something interesting to consider. Well, and the other thing I learned, I hear a lot of professionals where in the Netherlands we try to get the private market doing uh, more on housing. Uh, something I learned here is that we shouldn't make too big steps and we should realize that having non-profits owning so much houses and renting it for so uh, low rents is really a valuable asset. And, and what the professionals told me here is that, well, if you give it to the private investors, they'll do whatever is agreed. But afterwards, they'll ask market rates and you've lost the public housing. Well, so that's something to consider too. But there are a lot of more other interesting instruments uh, I saw here in the United States. 
Well, congratulations on everything you're doing. It sounds like a fascinating project, and I am sure your folks in the Netherlands will benefit from it. Well, thank you. It's been a great honor to be on your show. And, uh, well, I think Chicago is a, is a great city. And I was in Boston before, and all the people I spoke to in the United States are very willing to tell me about low-income housing, affordable housing. So uh, thanks again for your uh, hospitality. Paul Van Minnen is Chief of Operations for a social housing company called Talis, and he's from the Netherlands and has been studying how low-income housing is organized in the U.S. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And today we'll be talking with seventh graders from Chicago Jewish Day School. They are working on a project to get clean water to people who need it. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we talk with people who make the world a better place. With me are Isabel Goldberg, Noam Wolkenfeld, and Lily Cope. They're all seventh graders at Chicago Jewish Day School, and they're learning about how essential clean water is to everyone. They're working on a project to get clean water to some people who need it. Great to have you with me. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. And, and all your classmates are right outside the window. How many of them are you? we got like 15, 10 kids from uh, the Jewish uh, Chicago Jewish Day School there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, now, how did you guys get started on clean water? Lily, what, what happened there? So we read this book, A Long Walk to Water, by Linda Sue Park, and we read about this character, Naya, who had to walk four miles every day in order to get water for her family. And we decided that this wasn't fair, so we decided to start a project in order to raise money to build a well in South Sudan. Now, um, how did you find an organization and manage to think that through? Isabel? Um, so at the end of the book, it talks about how um, Salva started the organization um, Water for South Sudan. And, and his name's Salva Dutt, and he's uh, someone who was... Yeah, he's uh, the main character in the book A Long Walk to Water. And he had faced many like hardships throughout his journey in, in the book. and He was in the, the, the uh, child during the Civil War in South Sudan. Yeah, and he felt like he should do something to help people in South Sudan. Um, so he started his organization, and at, when we concluded the book, we wanted to help, so we started our project. You know what? We have a clip from uh, Salvadot, and he is someone who um, he was uh, a child in South Sudan. He came to the United States, and he went back and he helped with this project where, from where he was originally from. He did a TED talk, and here he is. He is the founder of Water for South Sudan. I started a nonprofit called Water for South Sudan. It took me four years to collect fifty thousand that I was looking for to go back and drill a well. When I collect that. 
I purchased all the equipment that I need, and I went back home. When I drilled the first well in my daddy's uh, village, I could see immediately the power of the water, what water do in our life. Garden around the well, clinic is coming in, uh, market is coming in, and the entire community thriving. And because of just little seed that we put down there, seed of drilling well triggers so many things in the entire community. And you could tell the water is the foundation toward the human development. That's Salva Dutt. He is the founder of Water for South Sudan. I'm talking with seventh graders from the Chicago Jewish Day School who are helping raise some funds for Water for South Sudan. Um, Noam, how did you get um, what, how did you gain an appreciation of water as something that everyone needs out there? Because it, when we hear Salva talking about this, there's a, a community that really needs water, and we don't even think about that here. We we have so much water. Right. Well, I guess part of it was at the beginning of the year, we learned about evolution and we learned about how much water affects evolution and how that like how that played such an important role in like humanity itself. So that kind of helped us appreciate water in the first place. And then when we read the book, that strengthened that even more strengthened our idea of water. Now, how much did you guys know about South Sudan before you read the book? Anybody? Uh, Um, Isabel? Not. Almost nothing. We I hadn't really ever thought about it before. Uh, Lily, did you had you heard about South Sudan? I hadn't. This book really made me understand what was truly happening in the world around me. And in South Sudan, the the number of people who don't have water it's uh, enormous. There's like statistics that are pretty serious. Lily. Yeah, there are 844 million people who lack basic drinking water needs. And the girls in the family are usually the ones who have to go and get the water for the family, which means that they can't get an education for themselves. And we decided that that's not right. Uh, it, it affects more than just not having water. It affects people's education, their well-being for their entire life. Right. Yeah, and the fact that they can't get an education makes it harder for them to get out of the situation that they're in. So they'll never be able to get out of that. Now, what are you guys going to do to help uh, raise water for uh, South Sudan? What's, what's the project? Noam? Um, well, we're going to have a walkathon on the 26th, 28th, sorry. And um, we're going to get sponsors from our family, and hopefully we'll raise $5,000 for um, a, uh, a third of a well sponsorship in South Sudan. It sounds like your, your walkathon is a little different than just a regular walkathon. Um, Lily, what are you guys doing? So we know that we could never fully put ourselves in these young girls' shoes, but we want to create a simulation of what it's like to have to carry the heavy water for four miles back to their villages. So we will be carrying um, two ju- full jugs of water, and for each mile that we walk, we'll get a certain amount of money. Now, have you been practicing with jugs? Because it sounds like this is something that is quite heavy. The, each, each of your jugs are um, a, a bunch of pounds. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've been, like, practicing around the school building, but, like, it's not, like, it's, it's not going to, we're not well practiced yet. Not, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's going to be hard. Pick but, them up and, like, lift them. And they're really heavy, but we haven't, like, walked very far. They usually stay, like, in the classroom. 
All right, but this is the challenging part. This is where people get their money's worth, is watching you walk three or four miles like this young woman uh, in, in uh, South Sudan. The, uh, how many students do you think are going to do this, Nisbal? Um, well, for now, we know that it's um, just our grade, 15 of us, but we're hoping that like, when we walk, like, people will see and they'll like, like they'll ask us questions about what we're doing so we can also like raise awareness and then maybe they'll like start doing something. All right. And uh, you wrote me a letter. You wrote uh, you decided to write us and see if you could rally more people to your cause here. Um, that's a terrific thing. And now uh, do you want people who are listening right now, if they, if they sent you guys an email, if they got in contact with you, that would be a good thing for the, um, for the project. Yeah, um, you can email us at walkforwater at, at cjdskids.org. And that's cjdskids.org. Yes. And um, how is the rest of the school reacting to the project? Do, do, do they know about it? Or are you getting people excited about it, Lily? Yes, so we've made multiple announcements about it, and we've actually gone to the classrooms to raise more awareness about it. And I think that the school thinks it's really awesome that we're doing something like this. And I think it's going to inspire more grades to be more active in the community. Have you met anyone from South Sudan yet? We have not. <laughs> we are hoping to um, so that we can listen to their experiences. That's great. I, I know some friends from South Sudan. I know some South Sudanese guys who are, who are involved in projects. They all do uh, projects to help uh, back home in South Sudan. I should introduce you. Yeah, yeah for, sure. for sure. Definitely. <laughs> um, uh, what, what's been the best part about doing this, Isabel? Um, I... I think it's just like knowing that you're helping people somewhere who don't necessarily have the tools to help, help themselves. You're giving them the tools so that maybe you're not like doing everything, but you're ma you're making them able to help themselves, and like that's like really great knowing you're helping people. What's been the best part about it for you, Noam? Well, I think just um. Learning about Salva himself was very interesting because it's hard for us to, it, it's even hard for us to get water for people in South Sudan. And he grew up in South Sudan and he did not grow up with the resources that we have. So it's amazing to see how he was able, he was able from nothing to create like such a big impact on his community. Lily, do you have some favorite parts of this? Yeah. So before this, I really thought like, I, I don't have a big role in my country, obviously. <laughs> and I was thinking, how could I make a difference in the world by doing something small like this? And our teacher really encouraged us, and we encouraged each other, and we're really hoping to make a difference, and that's really special to me. I'm talking with seventh graders from Chicago Jewish Day School, and they're Isabel Goldberg, Noam Wolkenfeld, and Lily Cope, and they're raising money for, uh, uh, for South Sudan, for uh, Water for South Sudan. It's an organization that helps build wells in, um, in South Sudan. Um, what do you think you will do with this experience afterwards? If you, if you achieve your goal, um, is there something that you've learned that you can apply to future endeavors? No. Well, I think that it's just about it, it's new. It's new for me. Every time I turn on the tap, like it, I think about how like lucky I am, and that's that's definitely new for me. Like I, like I, whenever, whenever I turn on the tap, it was nothing. Like glass of water. Like I would ask my parents, "Can you like go like to the kitchen and get me a glass of water?" Like even though it's only a couple feet away, 
And like now, now, I, like next time, I, I will not do that. I'll go up and I'll get myself water, even though that's nothing. Like even though, and I'll remember how easy that really is for me. Um, how, how about how about you guys? Any thoughts, um, Isabel? Uh, kind of like what Noam said. Um, I'm much more like aware of how much water I use because some people don't have any water, so I don't think I should be wasting a ton of water. Um, that just this morning, even, I was like using the water fountain, and then I like kept pressing the button uh, by accident, and then I didn't even realize. And then after I had like walked away, somebody's like, "Oh, you had been pressing the button for a really long time, and you like wasted a lot of the water." And I felt like really bad. So I've got rain barrels all over my house. <laughs> yeah, so I try not to use water outside, and <laughs> don't don't water things without using rainwater. That's that's one way you can save water right here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, what's uh what do you guys want to do next? Is there another project you think you would you would want to pursue other than water? Is there uh things you would want to participate in in the future, Lily? So, I think that so this well is going to be going to a community. Um and we definitely want to continue to help other people around the world. And I think we're going to continue to learn about different situations that we can help. Um, and our teachers at our school are really helping us move forward in our helping the community. Well, congratulations on what you're doing. I think this is great, and I think you're um, going to learn a lot and have a great experience. And people are going to get something they really need in South Sudan, water. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We're talking with uh, Isabel Goldberg, Noam Wolkenfeld, and Lily Cope. They are seventh graders at Chicago Jewish Day School. And if you want to get in touch with them, you can find them on email at walkforwater at cjdskids.org. And there is also uh, the Chicago Jewish Day School is a Facebook page, an Instagram account, and all the rest. And their walk is on Friday, September 28th. So you guys still have a little time to work out with those those pails of water that you're going to carry three miles. And that's going to be quite a workout. And congratulations on what you're doing. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk with Raul Sharma from the organization Funka Daisy and hear about the experiment that they're doing. They're doing a new composition in Inglewood with people there. Join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Amber Fisher. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.